were talking about about prophecy, I think was one of the last points I had ended on, that the reason we do these things is so that our sisters have space and room to prophesy. And we were talking about that at lunch today, or at supper this evening. And, um, and I want to clarify a little bit what I mean by that. Um, I think that it's really noteworthy. I had a few conversations today, so it's definitely worth clarifying. There's, um, there's a testimony in the New Testament that we can kind of lose sight of. And what that testimony is, is that the, the New Testament is actually rather progressive for its time, certainly, about the value and importance of women in the early church. And this is, this is something that we should stop and think about for a minute. Think about the women who are recorded in the New Testament and what role and function they fill. What my claim was to somebody at lunch today is that women are not secondary characters in the New Testament. Now, we, we know that Jesus has his 12 apostles and there's the disciples around him, but think also of Mary and Martha. Think of the pl- prominent role of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his ministry, in his life, and in the early church. Think of how the women are the first testifiers of the resurrection. Think of how the women are praying with the, with the, the prayer meeting to have Peter released from prison. Think of Phoebe being sent as a servant of the church with important messages from the apostolic team to communicate to other churches. Think of Lydia and her support of the Pauline ministry and how she makes the church possible in that place. Women are really important figures in the New Testament, and they should be really important figures in the New Testament church. So the question was asked to me, what does it mean? What do I mean when I talk about women prophesying? Where is that space and what does that look like? And what I would say is that there's one special time during the week when women shouldn't do that. And when we come together in the assembly, when the church is making a declarative statement, here's what the church believes, that's the domain of men. Outside of that place, Women have a prerogative of prophesying. That's why they cover their heads. And so there's all kinds of ways that that can happen. There's two main features of prophecy that I would, that I would point out from the Bible. And one of them is that to prophesy is to speak for God to speak the truth of God. Now, sometimes that's revelatory in a new sense, like such and such is going to happen, or Anna at the temple, this is the Christ. Like there's revelation that comes through prophecy, but there's also just the normal communication of things that we know are true from God and giving voice to those things, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the the teaching of the scriptures. These things are truths that our women should be able to communicate in the world when the chance arises. It's to all of us that it says to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lieth within you. That's all of our job. And that's prophecy. That's prophetic. But the other thing is that, okay, so one is to speak for God. We'll come back there in a minute. And the other is to call the, the prophets in the Old Testament are used to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. Like, they're God's people, they know what they're supposed to be doing, and they haven't been doing it, and the prophets are the people who rise up and say, hey, you guys are not being faithful to what God called you to do. And I would say that there's, there's, there's a vocal and an identity form of that prophetic witness. There's some kinds of prophecy that are, that are not about even just the things that we say, but the things that we do. They're prophetic actions. And I would like to make the claim that in our day and age, 
for women to cover their heads is a prophetic action. It does both of those things. It's communicating to the world what, what God wants us to know about his creation, and it is also calling God's people back to covenant faithfulness. It's reminding, like, so here's how that commonly goes in my life. We go to the grocery store, we go to Costco, and we got a pack of children, and we all unload the van, and we walk into Costco, and we walk around, we get our stuff, and I say hello to everybody because I'm at Costco two times a week. And so I say hi to Jim, and I say hi to Bill, and I say hi to everybody. And invariably, someone will come up to my wife and say, who are you people? Do you mind if I ask what's your religion? Yes, please ask. And that, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to prophesy, to speak for God, to give voice to who and what we are and why. Those people are coming to us and asking because of this prophetic statement that's being made about who we are as God's people. So there's a big umbrella that that, that, that lies under. We have a special rule of order for the assembly of the saints, and that's a place that's the domain for men to speak. Outside of that, Prophesy, sisters. Would to God all his people would prophesy, Moses says. So I hope that helps, you know, kind of flesh out what that means, why, we, why we're doing this in the first place. Um, <clears throat> we were in, I think, verse 6. We talked about men. And then, we, and then we talk about prophecy. For if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. For if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So here, we're going to come back to this at the end. So this issue of long and short hair. So we'll, we'll just save that for now. It repeats at the end of this chapter. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, this concept of glory is a really interesting thing. Uh, here, again, these words are not, they're not just random words that got picked, glory. Glory is a concept. Glory means something in the Bible. There's, there's some really like, significant features of what glory means in the Bible. So there's the Shekinah glory, right? The Shekinah glory is the place in the ark between the cherubim on the ark that was the place where God came. That was called the Shekinah glory. That's the place of God. That's where he was. Uh, and that's, where did that sit? If you have the temple, you know, you have the, the, the court of the Gentiles, and then you have the court, and then you have the temple itself where the ministration happens with, with, with all the sacrifices. And then you have the veil, and behind the veil, you have the glory. This, gets re this pattern of veiled glory gets repeated over and over again. And I, we could take the time to look at the 20-so verses where glorying and veiling are connected together, but it's a very common principle in the Old Testament. And I think, I think what Paul is re alluding to, he's using this terminology of glory in connection with veiling to hearken back to these old Hebraic ideas about glory being behind something. So, the, so another example would be like when the, when the cloud rests on the tabernacle and reveals the glory of God. Like it's veiled under this cloud and the glory of God is revealed. So, these, so glory very often as a concept is, is put behind something. It's reserved. It's special. It's precious. It's not common 
It has a separate category where it belongs somewhere special. And that's the terminology that's being used about men and women and about this act of the veiling. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. So, and then he goes on to say, for the man is not of the woman, we talked about this the other night, but the woman of the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. That's Adam and Eve. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And for this cause... Because of that order, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, this power on her head because of the angels, let's let's start with what we know for sure. What we know for sure is that something about what women do when they wear a veil is, is significant to more than meets the eye. It's significant that we do these things for supernatural reasons, not just physical reasons. We're doing something more than just presenting an identity to the world around us that we can see and know when we practice this. That's for sure. What does this mean for the angels? Well, there's several different ideas, and it could be a mixture of many of them. I can tell you for sure what the early church believed about this is that they connected this idea because of the angels to Genesis chapter 6. When the, when the sons of God lied with the daughters of men and created a race of giants and God brought the flood and wiped out the earth, that the early church saw a connection between women and their, capacity and their attraction to these angelic things. Not only that, but the rebellion that was, that was implicit in all of that action. Like the bastardization of the human species in this iniquitous act in Genesis chapter 6, the early church saw that rebellion as being corrected. There's one of those fall and redemption ideas that the church now was going to correct this and tell them we're off limits. Like we are clearly in God's space. We have nothing to do with you. This is not your domain. Don't look at us. Don't, we're not, we don't have nothing to do with you. So that's how the early church was reading. Many, several of the early church authors talk about this because of the angels in that connection with, directly with Genesis chapter 6. There's another idea that <clears throat> also some, of, some fairly early witnesses talk about the idea that um, the angels, not the fallen angels, but God's angels are interested in what the church does. They're learning things from us too, is we have a different state than them. We have a different, like we, we're a little lower than the angels, right? Hey, let's, let's stop here for a second. Do you believe in angels? Angels are real. I, it's, it's, a, it's above me. I have, I'm not claiming I've seen them. I don't understand them. I don't know what's going on there. It's not, it's, it's not for us to know all that stuff. We haven't been revealed. He hasn't told us a lot of things about it. But they're there. There is a realm above us. There is a realm, a supernatural realm, that we don't have access to that's happening. There are powers and principalities and rulers of the darkness of this age. And that is happening in our midst. And... God's angels are interested in what's happening here. He sends them. They're still his messengers. They're still involved in his work. They're still active in this world. They're still working at the, at the request of the Father in heaven above. And they're interested in what the church is doing. And Paul says, know you not that we shall judge angels? 
Like there's going to be a time in the future when these realities are going to mesh together and the faith is going to become sight and all of this is going to become visible to us. And when that day is manifest, we're going to see a lot of things and understand a lot of things that we don't now. So what should we do with that? Well, there's not a whole lot for me to do except for look into the scriptures and say, I want to be faithfully communicated. Here's what God's told us we can do about this situation. Here's some way we can affect this realm by being faithful to these teachings that came to us from the apostle. And so when we practice these things, don't forget that there's something, there's something bigger, there's something higher, there's something above this plane that we're engaging with when we practice these things. It's not just about you. It's not just about how you're seen. It's not just about our culture. It's not just about our church services. It's about heavenly things. They're noble things. And that's an underlying conviction that can, you know, encourage us to be faithful. There's several other theories about because of the angels. I, I, for me, those are the most compelling ones, so I'll leave the other speculative cases aside for you to, to look at. Uh, I, uh, it's worth mentioning here, just to back up a little bit, I talked about this concept of glory. David Berceau on scroll publishing, I don't know if any of you all read scrolls materials, but he has... Uh, this book is is called Glory Seen and Unseen by Warren Henderson. I think Scroll still has this. It's where I got it. And he, he deals a lot with this concept of glory, especially in the Old Testament, and how it fits into this, this rationale. It's all about the covering and what he thinks is happening with this. Um, I have... I have a lot of books on my shelf about this issue. I have a whole section of books on this, and this is one of the better ones. It's not perfect. I wouldn't write it just the same way myself, but there's a lot of really good content in this book in particular. So if you're interested in taking a dive into the Old Testament, especially in this concept of glory and how it relates and what it means to be the glory of man, what it means for the woman to be the glory of man, and how veiling fits into that concept, that's a whole book on that subject. It's, it's worth your read. <clears throat> okay, so we, we're at verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And then in verse 11 it says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And here again, we talked about it the other night, we have this beautiful like circle. Like there's this, there's this root cause that women come from men in the garden, and now we all, we all love our mamas. We all came from our mother. And that creates this... I think the reason he mentions this is he wants us to remind us of, of our, our interconnectedness. Like, this isn't... When we go back to that body analogy of head and body, like, we, you can't separate these things. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I, I, <clears throat> it needs to be the case that we, we, we eliminate this idea of competition between the genders. That, this, that there's some kind of over-under mentality and who's in charge and who gets to be the boss and who... I, I'm telling you, we all know this intrinsically. Like You can't live that way. 
it, it doesn't work. Like you're, you would be useless in the world if your body ran that way. And we have to see these things. I think the reason for all of this terminology, for the terminology of woman coming from man and man coming from woman, the cyclical nature, the head, the body, the, the, the analogy of Christ and the Father and man and Christ, all of this stuff is to say these issues are indivisible. Like you can't, if whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Every Christian marriage, every marriage, but certainly every Christian marriage has been blended together in Christ to be one new thing. Uh, David and I were talking about this one time. There's actually a, an expression in Latin for this. It's called tertium quid. It's, it's an alchemical, it's, a, it's from the alchemists. You know, the alchemists were trying to make gold. And the Latin expression tertium quid was when you take one thing and another thing and you mix them together, you get one new thing, the tertium quid, the third thing. So you have part one, part A, and part B, and when you put them together, you get C. You don't get A plus B, you get C. It's a new thing. It's a tertium quid. And this is what marriage is. You cease to be A plus B. Now you're C. Now you're joined together. You're made one new thing. That new thing, that's something supernatural as well. That isn't something that you can see with your eyes, but you can feel it with your heart. You go to, you go to a wedding. I love going to weddings. I, I love these things in order. I love baptisms first, I love weddings second, and I love Christian funerals third. Those are three things that I love to be a part of as the church. They're three holy things that happen among our people. And when you go to a wedding and you see, like, there's that moment, like, in, in our, I don't know how your wedding services go, but, but there's that moment where they become husband and wife, and it's like you can almost feel it in the air. Like something's happening here. And the two leave that wedding as something different than the two of them came in. That's, that's a mystery, right? What's God doing there? I, I, you can't see it with your eyes. You can't measure it with a ruler. You can't weigh it. You can't, you can't put the right kind of like lens to see it. But we know, we know, we know, we know that two are made one. They're one new thing. And all of this is what's being communicated here. These things are indivisible. You cannot take them back apart. And now when we come to these texts, we always want to ask the question, well, what's the division? What's the part? What's my part? What's your part? No, it's not your part and your part. It's our part. How do we live these things out? It's not me and you. It's we. All of this terminology, all of this passage is designed to communicate there's something indivisible happening in your lives now. You can't pull this apart, and you have to be in harmony. All of it's about harmony. All of it's about cooperation. All of it's about being together. All of it's about synchronizing and harmonizing and one thing. And that's why it's a great mystery concerning Christ and his church. Because that's the same thing. You see how beautiful that is? That's the same thing. What happens in our home, what happens in our marriage ceremony, is what's happening with Christ and his church. And it's like you have these little microcosms of Christ and his church, Christ and his church, Christ and his church, Christ and his church. And the ideal is that 
that resonates across the whole church. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? It means a lot of things. Let Let me phrase it. Let me ask the question this way. How does Jesus tell the disciples, greater things than these shall you do also? You ever done greater things than Jesus did in his earthly ministry? You ever raise the dead? You ever turn water into wine? You ever make loaves and fishes multiply? I haven't. I know nothing about that. So what does it mean? Why does he say that? Why does he say that to his disciples? Greater things than these shall you do also. Well, at least one answer to that question is that Jesus was in one place at one time. And he was preaching the truth. He was, he, was, he was administering the gospel of the kingdom. He was doing one thing in one place at one time, and in that case, for one people. And, and he, like those loaves, has been broken and multiplied and broken and multiplied and broken and multiplied and broken and multiplied. And he said, my, my flesh is bread indeed, is meat indeed, I am that bread from heaven. And the same way that he broke two loaves and those fishes and multiplied all that bread and fed all those people, we are that in him. We are the multiplication of the bread. We are the little Christs being spread throughout the whole world in century after century. The little Christs going here and there, hither and yon, in every little place and recollecting themselves as the Christian church and disseminating the gospel and bringing peace and order and rule to the earth and displaying what God's real intentions for his creation was. And now it's everywhere. And that's more than he could do in one place at one time. Now we're everywhere. Okay, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. That's a good way to end that sentence. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? After he talks about all this. After he lays out all this pattern, he says, you ask yourselves. Doth not nature, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory. There's that word glory again to her for her hair is given her for covering. Okay. What's that mean? Well, this is kind of like because the angels, there's a, there's some different ways of looking about this. And I think it's probably a multiple a multiple answer to that question, but I um, I had this conversation with Nelson at lunch today too. What what what's he talking about? Nature. Well, in nature, you know the it's the male peacock that has the big tail. It's the male mallard that has all the flashy colors. It's the it's the lion that ha- the male lion that has the mane. Are we sure nature's teaching us? 
I don't know that he's referring to the animal kingdom. I'm going to give you my subjective. Uh, you, you, you try this out. Examine it for yourselves and see what, see, be Bereans about this and see what you think. But what I think is that when you look at, when you look at throughout history and culture, there's been this very common tendency. I'm not going to say it's completely universal, but it's a very common tendency that long hair goes with femininity and short hair goes with masculinity. Where does that come from? Well, I could make some speculations. I don't entirely know, but I can tell you that if you're going to be in war, you certainly don't want to have long hair. And men for all of human history have been the warriors for every class of people. And so it's probably something associated with that. Every, if you look all throughout history, men have, men have short hair. The Romans did, the Greeks did. Just, it's very, very common. And women have long hair. Why is that? Think about I, what I like to what I like to do is I like to I like to examine culture, and I'm an American, so I like to examine American culture. I, I like other cultures too, but but I know this one well. I know it inside out. And what I find it when you look at culture is you find these little these little rabbit trails, right? And you can pick up a rabbit trail and follow it and say, where where did this come from? And you start chasing that trail, and you'll see something. In this case, there's, if we think about femininity and the, the marks of femininity in our culture, still today, like if you see a shampoo ad, you don't ever see, like a lot of women have short hair nowadays. I have never seen an advertisement for shampoo for women with a short-haired woman. I never see a woman with a haircut like mine going like this in an advertisement for shampoo. It's always some long, luxurious hair, and it's all fanned out. And When the girls want to go out into town and party, they let their hair down, right? There's, some, there's still these vestiges in, in this culture where this is completely lost. Like, nobody's talking about this stuff, for sure. But you still have these vestiges of these ideas implicit in our culture. That long hair is a way that you denote femininity. I, I don't know where it comes. He doesn't tell us anything. He's just, he just makes this claim, just like I am now. Here it is. Nature tells you. And I, I think that's what he's alluding to, this notion that's implicit in us that, that short hair is connected to masculinity and long hair is connected to femininity. There's other, there's other kind of like uh, rabbit trails like that. Why do men still take off their hats when they go indoors or for, you know, if you're at a ball game and they sing the Star Spangled Banner to honor something, all the men take off their hats. You take off your hat when you go into church. You take off your hat when you do all these things. Where's that coming from? Well, nobody's talking about this, but I can tell you this is where it's coming from. In, in my circles, in the evangelical world, when I was a little boy, people still got Sunday bonnets for, for church. The little girls and the women would wear a Sunday hat. And if you didn't wear a Sunday bonnet, you at least had an Easter bonnet. Where does that come from? It comes from women covering their heads. And no, it's, it's, it's like... Generations removed from this teaching, and there's still this, this, this vestige, this leftover remnant of these teachings. Because here's the thing, and I, I'm not going to take the time to do all the spade work with you, but I can tell you that, let me say it this way, 
Mennonites are not particularly special in this regard. Do you know that in, in, before the 20th century, most churches, women covered their hair? Still today, the old Catholic grannies will cover their hair. Even young Greek Orthodox women will cover their hair. Um, it's, it, it's not just us. We're not the only people that did this. It's just that very recently, most people have quit doing this. But this practice of the Christian woman's head covering is, from the time of the apostles, it went on for 19 centuries at least. And it was almost endemic to Christian people that, that all Christian groups, women covered their heads. And there's still plenty of people who do. This isn't just us, right? This isn't unique to us. We don't own it. It's not the special possession of the Anabaptist world. It's the special possession of the Bible, of the Christian church. That's where this teaching comes from. And I, and I hope that my testimony this morning is encouraging to you that you, you don't have to be born with this to know this. In my churches back in Boston... Tons of our people have no Anabaptist heritage. And all the women cover. It's not coming from that. It's coming from here. It's coming from Corinthians. It's coming from the Apostle Paul. That's all you need to derive this teaching. You don't have to be born here. You don't have to be born in an Anabaptist setting. You just have to be born in a place where you want to read 1 Corinthians and do what it says. That's what it takes. So her hair is for a glory for her. And uh, if in the last verse of this, of this passage is, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And if you've ever had anybody kind of push back on you about that, the thing that, we're, the thing that we have no custom about is being contentious about this. The, it's, a, it's a strange grammar construction, but what the point of this is, we're not going to fight about this. I've laid out this teaching. This is what all Christian people do. You can't have a problem with it. It's a universal Christian teaching. We have no custom of quarreling about this. All of our people do it. And you could argue with my grammar in that if you wanted to, but the historical record is clear. We know that everyone that talks about this issue after this writing says the same thing for centuries that all Christian churches, women cover their heads. It's not unique. Um, I can tell you for a fact, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the interesting controversies in the third century, <clears throat> also was written about Tertullian. If you wonder why I've mentioned Tertullian so much, he's one of the most prolific authors in the third century. He just wrote a ton. But one of the things that he wrote was, a, was a, a work called Veiling of the Virgins. And it was called Veiling of the Virgins because there was no controversy in the church for him to address about whether or not women veiled their heads. The question was, in Greek, the word yune, it either means woman or wife. There's not a separate word in Greek for wife. It's just the word yune. And that also is true of man. Andros is man or husband, depending on the context of the sentence. 
And so for the Greek-speaking churches, the question arose, should women cover or should wives cover? Because this is talking about husbands and wives, so should we translate that word yune as wives? And this is a, a teaching especially for wives. And that means if you're not married, you're not subject to this teaching. This, this, this actually has been repeated in some other, like I, I heard that this controversy still exists in Russian-speaking churches where there's a similar construct about the word woman and wife. They're the same word. And so... That was the question for Tertullian in his day, not if women should cover, not if the church should practice covering, but if unmarried women should practice covering. And so he wrote this treatise. In that treatise, he appeals to the Corinthian custom. He says at a certain place, well, we all know what the Corinthians do, and it was their epistle, and it was their apostle, so we should probably do what they do. And the custom there was that all women covered. So so that's that's kind of like some historical context for this. I wanted to take the time while we were, while we were here and have gone through this to talk about some, um, some common questions, like when, when you get asked in the grocery store about this. Here, here's another thing, and I'll encourage you about this. When you get asked about, why do you look that way? Why do you wear that thing on your head? I would encourage you, don't take the shortcut. Don't say it's because you're a Mennonite. And there's a reason why I say that. The reason that you should say, you should not say, I wear this because I'm a Mennonite, is because that allows you to be dismissed. Because what will happen is, if you, if you have somebody come up in the grocery store and say, hey, why do you wear that thing on your head? And you say, because I'm a Mennonite, and this is what we do, then they say, oh, well, I'm not a Mennonite, so it doesn't apply to me. What's a much better thing to say if somebody comes up and says, hey, why do you wear that thing on your head, is to say, because I'm a Christian. And they say, well, I'm a Christian too. And you're like, well, do you believe the Bible? Yes, I believe the Bible. That's great. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul told the church that women should cover their heads when they pray or prophesy? Why well, don't, isn't that Old Testament? No, it's not Old Testament. Let's, I'll, I'll, look at you, I'll look at the Bible with you. You want to pull it out? I'd be happy to look at it with you right here, right now. Take the time. Take the time to do the work and prophesy. Speak the truth to the, about these things. Because, see, I don't, want, I don't want you to be dismissed. I don't want somebody to say, well, you're a Mennonite. I'm not a Mennonite, so I don't care. Like, okay, that's, that's cool then. You do your thing and I'll do mine. That, that's a missed opportunity. We want to stop and we want to say, no, let, let me show you from the scriptures why we do this. And let's challenge the world. Let's call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. You want to call yourself a Christian? That's great. I'll take you at face value. Let's assume you are. Why don't we look at the scriptures together? Because if you say you're a Christian and I say I'm a Christian, then we have, we have a common claim to the scriptures. So let's look at them. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. If you do that work, which I, I encourage you to do, you'll come across several different arguments about this issue. One thing that's often said about this is that these, this teaching applies specifically to the Corinthian church in the first century. And, and what will often happen in this case is that the claim is made, well, Paul is talking about some, some essential principles like maybe headship, but the application itself is conditioned within 
the the first century Corinthian environment. So when you leave first century Corinth, the way that we do this, the way that we do headship changes. And this is when I talked earlier about when, when we first started changing and we started looking at this as a litmus test, this is the kind of thing that I was talking about. The way that we look at the scriptures has all kinds of outcomes, right? So like because I went through this with the head covering, when I came across the passages about the holy kiss, I wasn't subject I had already learned how to receive teaching from the apostles. So when the apostles say, greet one another with a holy kiss, I don't I've already learned how to listen to the apostle. So I don't just negate that to a cultural version of greeting and say, well, they kissed one another, we'll use handshakes, or they or we'll use a hug. It's it's that's not the case. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. They they had the right hand of fellowship in Acts, right? They fell upon Paul's neck when he left Ephesus, right? They know how to say hug. They know how to say handshake. They don't say that. They say, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what it says. That's what it means. And I learned that process of dealing with the scriptures that way through examples like this, through working through how, what does this teaching mean and how do we apply it? So, so I say all that to say, there's a, the, the cultural version of, of, of taking text and saying, well, that just applies there. Well, there are some, it's, it's, it's a half-truth, right? There are some things that are relevant to the specific time and place. Like, Paul tells Timothy, get the parchments and don't forget my coat. That, that just applies then and there. Like, I don't have to get Paul's coat and parchments. It's not for me. But, it's, but we know how to tell the difference between those things. We know how to tell the difference. And the, the apostles know how to write about a specific case. And you can read in their writings when they're talking about you do this versus you all do this. And we have, those, we have those markers here, right? And we've already talked about them. But just to review, when somebody says, this is just for Corinth in the first century, say, well, why then does Paul say, be followers of me as I am of Christ? Why does he say, keep the ordinances I have kept them? Why does he use the creation? Why does he use the headship order? Why do, he, doesn't make, he doesn't make that claim that you're saying he's making. He doesn't talk about Corinth. He doesn't talk about... The, the temple prostitutes in, for Aphrodite, he doesn't say any of those things. What he says is that creation and nature are teaching us how to do this. So it's not cultural. It's for all of us. In every, in every time and every place. That's not how the logic of the passage works. It's not how the history of the church worked if people are subject to that. Another thing, another common thing that we come across is that people will say, well, okay, you're right, we, women should cover their heads, but because after this he talks about the communion service, I think he just means for in the church service. Now I'll tell you, I think that's better than ignoring it. I mean, I'm glad that people make that, that stance. But I don't follow the logic, and here's why. In fact, what I usually say is that, well, I'll take you there with me. Flip over your, your, your Bible just a couple chapters. 
into, verse, into chapter 14. And he says in uh, verse 29, Let the prophet speak two or three, let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one, all that all may learn, and all may be comforted. He's talking about prophecy in the church. Prophecy, remember? Why do we wear head coverings? For prayer and prophecy. He's talking about prophecy in the church. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's a shame for women to speak in the church. If the church is the one place that we're saying women don't have a place to be prophesying and speaking up, why would that be the one place that they wear a head covering so that they can speak up and prophesy? If anything, I would say the church is the one place women didn't have to cover. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying, if you want to make that argument, here's the one time and place where we know none of the sisters are going to be talking and prophesying. And they wear head coverings so they can talk and so they can pray and prophesy. That makes no sense to me. I just don't, I just don't follow. It doesn't follow. I think you sisters should cover in the meeting. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you were going to make the case, it would be the exact opposite way. So that's how we address, that's how I address that. And then another common objection we hear is that um, it's, not a, it's not a veil, that long hair is what's being talked about here. And I think this is just as easy a case to discuss as, as, as the other two. This, this can't be talking about hair as a, co- as a covering, like in place of a covering, for several reasons. If you wear a veil for praying and prophesying, well, you can't take long hair on or off, depending on whether or not you're praying and prophesying. So that's step one. Step two is, there's a very easy proof to look at. When, and somebody says, I think, it's, I think what he's talking about is long hair, not wearing a veil. Okay, well, let's supply that definition in the text. And I'll say, and we're going to read through this again, and instead of saying covered and uncovered, we're going to have long hair and short hair and see what happens to the text. This is a very simple proof. So start here in verse verse 5. Every woman that prays or prophesies with short hair dishonors her head, for that's even all one as if she were shaven. We're already redundant. For if a woman be not... If a woman doesn't have long hair, let her have cut hair. Another redundancy. If it's a shame for a woman to have cut hair, let her have long hair. None of this logic flows. It all becomes disjointed and makes no sense. We've we've rendered the text ineligible. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It just doesn't work. It has to be the case that when it says covered and uncovered, it means covered and uncovered. It doesn't mean long hair and short hair. Hair is significant here. It's, some, it's a mark. It's a, I don't know if we talked enough about that, but let me just say another quick thing about the glory issue. So the, the concept is that 
the long hair is a glory for a sister. She's the glory of her husband, and he's the glory of God. Like there's a descending order of glory. She has glory in her long hair. He has glory in her. God has glory in him. And that, that, that we're offering up something, like that same kind of sense of glory, that honoring of God, that, that sense of value and reservedness and consecration, all of those things are implicit in these terminology of glory, glory, glory. Okay, so those are some common objections. Maybe you have some others, and we can talk about those as well. But I want to talk a little more in-house now. So those are, those are frequently asked questions from the outside. Let's talk about frequently asked questions on the inside. What constitutes a covering? It's an open question, right? So we've talked about covering. Let's just assume, for, for my sake, that I've proven my case about covering. What should a covering look like? What constitutes a covering? And here's where I like to do a thought experiment. It applies to a lot of practical applications of Scripture. Because what happens, when, wherever we have a practical application of Scripture, we're always trying to define the lines. And I'm not even, I'm, I'm not even having any problem with that. I, we, we want to know where we are, right? We want to know where we are in relation. What does God expect? If he tells, if he tells us to practice headship veiling, what does it mean? What what, what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. It's a, val- it's a valuable question. How do we answer that question? If, if, if the apostle tells women to dress modestly, what does that mean? What constitutes modesty and what constitutes immodesty? And all these questions, you know, we have churches that split over this stuff. How do we find some kind of definition, some kind of parameter to be in? And I like to do a thought experiment. Let's, see, let's, let's just Let's just pretend that Paul wrote something else. Let's pretend there was a verse somewhere, and Paul says, I want all men to wear red. Well, you know, you know what would happen. We'd all be trying to figure out how red is red. Well, is this, is this red? It's kind of red. Is that red? Is that red? Is that red? What about that? Is that red? Oh, this is kind of this is pretty purple. We're on, we're getting on the purple end of red. We're getting on the orange end of red. How red is red? And we could split churches over the really reds and the pinks, and we could do all this kind of stuff, and we would forever be wrangling about how red is red. And and the thing about that is that, like all of these adjectives, like covered or modest. It's, there's some subjective room within that, the definition of that, of that term. So what I know about color is that red isn't really a thing. You know, It's a combination of things, and there's a whole spectrum of red. Red isn't a thing. Red is a spectrum. It's from here to here, and, and where the ends of that spectrum are is really hard to define. So I have two things that I think we, should, we red wearers should do. Do you want to be on the outside edge or the center of that? And I, I know, I know, brothers and sisters, that that's, people have been manipulated with that kind of terminology. It's a way to cow people. It's a way to, 
it has been used in many places to intimidate and bully people so that a certain faction can make sure they have it their way. And that's gross. I, I, I hate that that's happened. But for the individual, for me as a person, if the apostle tells me to wear red, I just want to wear red. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And maybe there's a bunch of colors of red that I can wear, but I want to wear red. And, 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 and maybe I don't know where the shades are, but I'll tell you what, I know that blue isn't red. I know that green isn't red. I know what's not red. And in some of these adjective cases, it's almost easier to define what it isn't than what it is. Because what it is can be a whole spectrum, but what it isn't is easy to see. Is this modest? Yeah, kinda. Is this modest? No. Is this covered? Kinda. Is this covered? No. You can see the difference. You can see what's not pretty clearly. And so, so as we approach these kind of like, how should this work? What should it look like? I think the best thing to do is to try to get to the center and for all of us individually say, I just want to be at the center. I want to be pleasing. Remember we talked this morning. I don't want to be how close, I don't want to do the bare minimums. I don't want to be at the edge of acceptability. I want to be at the center of God's heart. I want to be, I want to know that when, how I am in the world, God doesn't just say, I'm not angry with that. God says, I like that. That makes me happy. I'm pleased in my son. I'm so happy that's my daughter. Look, we spent, we spent hours now this weekend together looking at these principles. If you hide these things in your heart, if these are motivating to you, if you want to be faithful to these things, I'm not very worried that you're going to be running to the fringes of how, how, how little can you do and be found acceptable. This stuff is eternal. It's about, it's about Christ and his church. It's about displaying his glory. It's about all these things that we've talked about. Just get in the center of it. That's, that's, all, that's all. It's the easiest but the most, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know why we... I don't know why that's hard for us. It's hard for us because a lot of other things crowd in. A lot of identity pieces crowd in. And, you know, if you wear this, you're connected to that. And if you wear this, you're connected to that. And there's all these other pieces and layers and clans and ideas that get associated with this stuff. Instead of, and that, I, I just want to bless you all. Let's, let's just get right back down to 1 Corinthians 11, right back to simplicity. Cover head you look at yourself when you put your head cover on say is my head look covered it's yeah yeah or no it's either covered or not covered you decide here's an, that's something i was talking about today too that you're god's people you know that like all that stuff we talked about on the board, how Jesus, the Father gave up his son and Jesus endured the cross and like all this, all this that's been happened. I'm not even talking about this stuff right here right now. I'm just talking about our relationship with God in Christ. Like everything that he's done for us, you're his people. 
And what it said in the Old Testament, what it said in the prophets was that no more will they say, let us go into Jerusalem and learn the way of the Lord for every man shall know him. And I'll take their hearts of stone and I'll give them hearts of flesh. And I'll write my laws upon their hearts. That's you guys. You're the fleshy hearted people. You're the soft and the yielded to God. You're the ones who know your value in him. You're the ones who, he, he's the reason for your being. He's the reason you're here. He's the reason that your life isn't a mess. He's the reason you have salvation. He's the reason you have peace. He's the reason you're connected to God. He's the reason you can pray. Don't forget that. Now, why does that matter? Why am I bringing it up here? I was talking to the brothers about some of these ideas we talked about last night about community. And one of the things that we do as a community is that we have regular meetings back home. And when we have these meetings, we talk about who you, we talk about self-assessment. This is a really good practice to self-assess. It's more important for you to know where you're at than for me to tell you where you're at. For me to tell you where you're at is a last ditch attempt. That's like a rescue measure. That's not where we want to live. Sometimes we have to do that with people. But the ideal is that our conscience, our hearts, our connection to Christ, our love and zeal for him is what causes us to sit down at the end of the day and to think about ourselves and say, where am I at? How am I doing? So what we do back home, and this is a really important thing, and I would love if you people to find a way to do this. It's, it's one of my, it's one of my, like, one of the causes I champion more than anything is this self-assessment and accountability. And so what we do is we sit down in groups. The brothers will sit down in groups of three to five. And every week we meet together. And the nature of this meeting is for us to say, how are we doing? And what I mean by that is we ask a series of questions to one another. We call these our leadership development groups. And the questions are, in the whole Boston church, every brother Every week is meeting and asking each other these questions. How is your, um, your prayer, devotion, and fasting? How is your relationships? Like if you're married, how is your marriage? If you're a parent, how is, your, how is it going with your children? If you're single, how are things with your parents and your siblings? And, and for all of us, how are our relationships in the church? How is your media and time management? Are you being faithful with your time? Are you looking at the things that you ought to look at and not looking at the things you ought to not look at? And have you been a faithful witness for the kingdom? Those four questions get asked every week. Now, when I ask those questions to my guys in my group, I'm not, I'm just asking him to tell me. I haven't been with you all week. I don't know if you've been a faithful witness for the kingdom. You tell me. And we set goals in this meeting, too. So, so back to that question. Have you been faithful with your prayer, devotions, and fasting life? I don't care how much my brothers want to read their Bible or pray or fast. That's not my... I don't, it, it doesn't matter to me. We set goals. You tell me. You tell me how much do you want to read your Bible. I'm not going to decide that for you. 
You want to read a chapter a day? You want to read 10 minutes a day? You want to read an hour a day? You want to read an hour three times a week? You want to read, I, I don't, you want to read the whole Bible in a month? I don't care what you want to do. That's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with me. You tell me, you assess, what do you need? Because you're a reliable witness of where your heart's at. When things are normal and things are right, you're a reliable witness. You love God. You're a child of God. You tell me. And if you tell me, then I'll keep you accountable. So you tell me, I want to read a, I want to read a chapter a week. I mean, a chapter a day. Okay, so now next week comes around, and we meet together again, and you say, I say, hey, brother, did you read a chapter a day last week? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't. I, I missed it Tuesday and Thursday. Okay, why'd you miss it? Well, got up late and had to run off to work, and it just it didn't get done. Okay, well, what are you going to do this week? Well, I'm, I'm just going to make sure and get up. Okay. Another week comes by. Hey, did you read, did you read a chapter a week this week? Yeah, I missed it again. Really? What, what happened? Same thing. I just didn't get up. Hey, brother, here's the thing. You said, you told me what you wanted to do. I didn't set that rule for you. I didn't set that goal for you. That's your goal. So let's go back. Let's go back there. Is your goal wrong? Or is your life wrong? What needs to be fixed here? Do you need to change your goal? It's, you, it's your goal. You do what you want. You, you need to change your goal, change your goal. But if that's the right goal for you, you're not being faithful. And I'm here to help you be faithful. That's my job. It's not to set your rules and parameters. It's to help you be faithful. And this kind of practice, this kind of self-assessment, who am I? Who are you in Christ? Here's a better question to ask. Uh, these meetings that we do, they came out of, they came out of my, one of the things that came out, I'm so tired of people saying, well, nobody's perfect. Okay, yeah, true enough, but quit telling me nobody's perfect as an excuse for you not being perfect. If you want to tell me nobody's perfect, well, I had this problem, and no, you know, nobody's perfect. What, what's not perfect? What's not perfect? Because Jesus tells us in a few places, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Like, it ought to at least be a goal. It ought to be a pursuit. So tell me, what's not perfect? What's getting in the way? You know, this is why I started by saying, you are God's children. You know what you're supposed to be. You know what God wants you to be. You know what your capacity in Christ is. You, you know what you should be. What keeps us from being that? And if you just keep that vague and keep it general, you'll do it for 60 years, man. 60 years, you'll have that same thing, and you'll just wallow in it. And you'll always have that same thing. I, that sounds like a curse to me. I don't want to have the same problem for 60 years. I got problems. I don't want the same ones 10 years from now. I don't want the same ones five years from now. I don't want the same problems a year from now. I don't want the same problems next week. I want to grow. I want to be what God wants me to be because I value who he is. And this kind of self-assessment, this, this, this is what keeps the church on track. 
It's not a formulation of the right kind of rules and what kind of coverings are we going to allow and what kind of dresses are we going to allow and what kind of rules are we going to follow. That's not what keeps the church on track. And I'm not saying whether we should or shouldn't do those things, but I'm saying it doesn't help. And I can prove it doesn't help because all kinds of churches that do that fall apart and split up and go their separate ways and people leave the church and people come and go. That's not the answer. The answer is this kind of assessment in each heart is who am I supposed to be in Christ and how do I get there and the best thing we can do for one another is assess that for ourselves and then help one another do it that's how you keep the church on track that's how you keep the standards of the church right it comes from within Sounds like a bunch of idealism, Matthew. I, I'm okay. I think it's what the Bible says. Call me an idealist. That's not to say that I, I don't think that community matters in these kinds of in these kinds of issues. We're people together. It's okay to talk about it. I mean, it should be okay to talk about it. I know that that's dicey in some places. But it, sh it shouldn't be. We should be able to have conversations. What does, how do we define these terms? What do they mean? I, you know, I, I have a little bit different administration and church model in some ways, and I'm, I'm not here to say anything about that what I what I think it should apply to all of us is that we're trying to grow and be God's people together regardless of our administrations regardless of our church models and how we're doing things and how we cut the lines we're trying to be an accurate representation of God's people on earth and that's a community effort and we ought to have the space and the grace and the love and the kindness and the charity with one another to be able to sit down and say, hey, what do these things mean? How, what, how red is red? What, what, what's, maybe, maybe we don't even need to decide. Let me, let me give you a snapshot. We got every kind of covering that you can imagine back, at my, back in my church. I mean, there's, I don't, I don't think we have any caps at the moment, but we got everything else but. We have women who wear long scarves that they wrap around their heads. We have bandanas. We have, we have lots of different applications for these things. We have lots of different applications for clothing, for modesty. I, I, I think that's, you know, from my perspective, I think that's beautiful, that there's different ways to do the same thing, I think is, is a wonderful thing, especially for a church that wants to make disciples and bring people in. We ought to be saying, you know, it's not a... Here's what, we, here's what I think is, is important to say. I, I don't think that we should use Christian practices, Christian practices to make statements about our denominational identity. That's a, I just said a lot there. What I mean is that I think, personally, I think it's dangerous to say, like, this is our little enclave of what it means to be covered and modest. 
And we're not defining the scriptures here. We're defining our club by these things. I think that 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 makes it so that it's very hard for people to come into the church. It walls off the church in a way. And what we're saying in, in those applications is not this is the Christian woman's head veiling, but this is our little group and our colors that we wear, our thing that we do that makes us us. It's not about Christian obedience. It's just about being a part of this particular club. I think that that's, I know why people do that. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy because the places where I've seen that done all over the country have a very, very hard time making disciples and bringing people into the church. So all this is about like community consensus. How do we work together to find some kind of commonality? I'll just say this, you know, back to this idea of these adjectives that are kind of poorly defined, like modest and covered. And um, we're we're creatures. We're linguistic creatures. Like we operate in language. So. The words that I'm saying, for them to be meaningful, we have to have some kind of commonality. Like we have to have a common definition within certain parameters for these words to mean anything, or else I should just get up here and blah, 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 blah. If there's no distinction to the sound, it doesn't mean anything. And the distinction to the sound is common definition. So when I say red, you guys all have an idea in your head that's red. When I say big, you know that it's something big. When I say small, it's something small. Words have definitions. And words don't have precise definitions, but they do have definitions. And so where I'm, I'm just telling you how we try to do this as a community is that we, what I want to do is if the word modest is used in the scriptures, if the word covered is used in the scriptures, we, we should have some conversations and talk about what, where, what does that word mean? And what are the parameters? How do we define that word? When we say it, how can we all mean the same thing? And, and how precise should we be? How red does red have to be? That's the question we have to ask ourselves so that we can keep moving forward. I think that's, that's all I'm going to say on that. There's a couple other little questions. I'll tell you some experiences I've had. Um, had a dear sister in my life uh, many years ago. She asked to be rebaptized, and when we talked to her, we said, "Well, why, 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 why do you need to be rebaptized?" Let me clarify that statement because I hate that terminology. Nobody should be rebaptized. People should only be baptized, but people should have valid baptisms. I don't believe in rebaptism. Um, she said her baptism wasn't valid, and she wanted a valid baptism. And we said, well, why, why, why did that happen? And she said, well, 
in my home church, um, all the little girls wore head coverings. And my family moved from that church to a different church where the little girls didn't wear head coverings. And the sisters started greeting me, and so they just kind of all assumed I had already been baptized. And so I went into instruction because uh, that was an awkward situation. I didn't want to take it off because I was used to wearing it. But I wasn't ready to get baptized necessarily. I just didn't want to deal with all that. So I went through instruction and got baptized. But that didn't really, nothing was happening in my life. I hadn't really been converted, and all that happened much later, and I need to set that in order. So we helped her with that, and that was, that was good. But what I've seen is that in a lot of times and places, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know what you guys practice here, but a lot of times and places, covering gets connected to baptism. Like it's what, it's what a girl does when she gets baptized. And I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, there's probably some merits to that distinction, that making a mark and saying here's where a child is and here's where a sister in the church is. That's fine. I can tell you how I've thought about that issue over the years is that there's lots of scriptures and teachings, there's lots of scriptural teachings about women like modesty. So I don't, my little girls in my house, I don't want them to be immodest because they're not Christian women yet. They're not subject to the teachings on Christian modesty. The Bible says not to wear jewelry. I don't give my little girls jewelry because they're not Christians in the church yet. It just made sense to me. That if, I, if this is about the creation, if it's about headship, it's about these really big concepts, I don't see that necessarily, again, necessarily connected to baptism. And so we've always done, in my house we have, but there's a multitude of practices. I think it's good to have, um, to just have those conversations as a church and say, where are we at with this? And what do we do? And do we, it's okay not, it's okay to just let families decide. I think it's okay to say, well, you, you want your little girls to wear coverings. You don't, it's fine. But, but lack of clarity and lack of talking about that creates confusing situations for girls sometimes. And I've just seen that over the years. And I think it's better to take that lack of clarity away and be upfront and open with how we, address these issues and how we do them. So those are those are a whole we walked through the text, we talked about some frequently asked questions, we talked about some practical application, and I hope that we've left room for more conversation here among you brothers and sisters about these issues. I hope that um, more than I hope that more than this last part of the discussion about nitty-gritty and details, that our hearts are focused on the big picture of what's happening here. And if I really believe if we get that right, the details can find themselves worked out in a healthy and a good way. I think that we'll close here, and and um, and I just want to leave as the last thing one more blessing for your church. Um, I I pray for all of you in the little bit that I've gotten to know you that these kinds of conversations grow and expand in your midst, that you find peace and liberty to really dig together as a group of people to really dig in to the truths of the Word of God. 
That time in my life when Eric and I were young Christians and we went digging in the scriptures. I know you brothers and sisters have, you're coming from a, a much better place than we did as 20-year-old kids off the streets, but, but the jewels in the scriptures are jewels nonetheless. These are a crown. They're, they're, they're the beautiful possession of the church, and I hope that you all experience them that way as well. So God bless you and thank you for your earnestness and your listening ears.